Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Selah Fellowship podcast for our Sunday services. Please open your Bibles as we dive into our study this morning. Luke chapter 6. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for today and for all this day holds. Lord, you foreordained this day from the foundations of the world and have known that each of us would be in this room on this day long before we were ever born. Not only that, you foresaw the wedding that's going to be taking place later this afternoon, and you've been orchestrating every life to bring us to this moment. And when we realize that, we also realize you have a word as we gather to study your word for each of us. So I pray, Lord, first you take me out of the way and that you step front and center and that you would share with your people today and that we all would have receptive hearts to what you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, So you'll have to, I know you guys get tired of hearing me say this, but I started on a, um, a new drug about three, four weeks ago now. It's an antispasticity drug. So that's important for two reasons. It increases a little bit of weakness to offset my spasticity. So if I fall down, don't worry. (laughs) And also affects my speech a little bit. So... It may be a little draggy, but God seems to intervene each time I have the chance to talk or teach. So um, we'll trust him for that today. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. We read, Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields, And his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So we are coming off of chapter 5. And remember that even though there's chapter breaks and we break it up in teaching cycles, this is one continual story that's being told. So there is something happening in Jesus' ministry now as he's stepping forth that he's beginning to be challenged by the religious leaders. And of course, we saw at the end of chapter 5 as Jordan so uh, aptly and beautifully topped chapter 5 last week, that they were questioning on the issue of fasting. Why is it that your disciples, Jesus, don't seem to be following the traditions or traditional things that are done in this religion that we are a part of. And the Pharisees are coming and questioning. 
And of course, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus is talking about how you don't put new wine in old wineskins. And again, Jordan taught on that, so I'm not going to expound on it as much as to say, now Jesus is going to begin to contrast for a period of time here how that looks differently in a person's life. We're going to see here in the first, um, what, 19 verses or so of chapter 6, there's going to be this contrast between the old system that the Pharisees are wrapped up in, that old wineskin, so to speak, and contrast those Pharisees and their approach to following God with how it is that God empowers and calls a person, a man or a woman, to himself. And then the latter half of chapter 6, which I think Pastor Mike is up next, he'll have the blessing of teaching the latter half, where he begins to describe what faith looks like in the life of a person who believes in Jesus. But here we see that Jesus, let me just remind you, Jesus said of himself, I came to bring life and life more abundantly. And Jesus has come to fulfill the law and describe it through his life what that abundant life looks like. So as here it says they're on the Sabbath, again, a couple of Sabbaths later from, I think the first Sabbath was in chapter 4. So two Sabbaths later, we don't know where they're walking to or where they're walking from. I would assume they're either walking to the synagogue or they're walking from the synagogue following their time of meeting. And the disciples who are following him are hungry. So as they're passing this grain field, they do what is approved of. They start to grab some of the heads of grain from the outside parts of the field, which were always left for the poor, as well as those who might find themselves in need of some food. And they grab that and they rub it between their hands and they blow on it to blow away the chaff and they pop it in their mouths to eat. And the Pharisees seeing this approach them and say, why are you disciples doing that which isn't lawful on the Sabbath? Now for those of us who don't live in that time, For those of us who aren't Jewish, we'd think, what did they do wrong, right? I mean, they're hungry. It's allowed for them to grab off the edges of the green fields. Doesn't sound like they did anything wrong to me. The issue is, it was on the Sabbath. And... Sabbath law, and we'll talk about that in a moment, established, well, in the Talmud, in addition to it, there's 24 chapters describing that which is not allowable on the Sabbath. But here, specifically, they reaped They winnowed to blow away the chaff. They gathered food and they prepared food. All of which, by 
um, Pharisaical law, Sabbath law, was not allowed. You couldn't reap, you couldn't uh, winnow and shuck the grain, you couldn't blow it away the chaff, and they even called that whole process preparing food. You could eat, you just couldn't do any of that. And so here we see Jesus and the disciples being confronted by the Pharisees on that. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to hearken them back to a story they know about. But the first thing I want to do for us this morning and how this can apply to us, in that day, we begin to see how man-made tradition or man-made religion or man-made rules in how we walk with God and approach God actually lead to more bondage than freedom. And for us today, though we wouldn't necessarily be following um, Sabbath law or Jewish law, we can create the same structures in our walk with God. And so this set up a real system of abuse. The Sabbath, which was to be a day of rest, set up by God even in creation when it said that God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work. It was a day the Lord, through his Ten Commandments, said was to be set aside and observed as a day of rest and reflection uh, for his people, um, for worship, revelation, and a relaxation of the body, but the Jews have now strayed from that. And instead of being a day of rest, it became a day of burden. Um, For instance, on the Sabbath, you couldn't carry a load heavier than a dried fig. Consider that. You can carry a load heavier than a dried fig. You couldn't throw an object into the air with one hand and catch it with the other. That was a violation of Sabbath law. Nothing could be bought, sold. No clothing could be dyed, washed, or sewn. You ladies like that. A letter couldn't be sent. A fire couldn't be lit or extinguished. It needed to already be lit and tended to. You were allowed to keep it burning. Um, For that reason, by the way, today Orthodox Jews are using timers in their houses to turn lights off and on. Because to turn a light is work, and you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. When we travel to Israel, if you stay in a hotel in Israel, on the Sabbath, it stops. The elevator stops at every floor. Because pushing a button is work. Uh, it goes on. Baths cannot be taken because the fear was water would spill out and then you'd have to wipe it up, which is work. A woman couldn't look in the mirror lest she see a gray hair, hair and be tempted to pluck it out. That's work. False teeth could not be worn because they weighed more than a fig. 
Yeah. If a person became ill on the Sabbath, you could treat him just enough to keep him alive. But you could do nothing else for him. And the list goes on and on. That's a, a small excerpt out of 24 chapters of what's not allowable on the Sabbath. Can you imagine being a Jew on the day of rest, trying to make sure you're not violating the law of the Sabbath? How burdensome and tiring that would be. You need a day of vacation after the Sabbath just to rest up from the pressure of trying to not violate the law of the Sabbath. So, in line with that, they've now, in this story, they've interpreted it as picking of grain is reaping, rubbing together is threshing, blowing the chaff is winnowing, And the fact that they could eat it was the preparation of food. And they were in violation of the Sabbath law. And the Pharisees were upset with the disciples. And so Jesus calls them back to a story they would know of. And it's the story of David. This is following the scene in Ramah of when David is going to leave because Saul's attempting to kill him. And you remember he's having that conversation with Jonathan? And he's like, Jonathan, your dad's out to kill me. Oh, David, no way. My dad loves you. I'm telling you, Jonathan, he wants to put me to death. And now it's the night of the feast of the harvest, and he will be expecting me at his table. And I know if I go, he's going to take opportunity to kill me. Jonathan's like, that had never happened. David's like, I'm not going. So Jonathan and him agree that Jonathan would go. And if Saul's countenance toward David was good, then Jonathan would report that to him. And if it was not for good, he would also report. And remember, he told David to hide in the field, and I'll come with my lad and I'll shoot an arrow. And if I say to my lad that the arrows flew to here, short of where you're hiding, David, that will be the word to you. That's all, all is good. My dad um, loves If I say to my lad, the arrow flew to this point, and that point is beyond you, That means run, because my dad is out to kill you. And you know that that was what happened, and so David fled. And he took a small band of men with him, and they wound up in Nod, N-O-D, Nod. And they were on the run, and they were hungry. Most commentators believe this was on the Sabbath, So 12 fresh loaves would have been baked and put on the showbread table inside the temple. And David and his men show up, and Ahimelech greets them, surprised to see David. And David's like, hey, my men and I are hungry. You got to eat food. And they're like, all we have is the showbread. And Ahimelech gives the showbread to David and his men to eat because they're hungry. Now, Mosaic, they were hangry, too. Probably. I almost said that. So they're hungry. 
So he gives it to him. Mosaic law says that only the priest could partake of that bread. And so Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and go, Hey, have you even read the story about David and his men? Now, the word even in there is very telling, and we'll get to that in a moment. But he's calling their mind back to it to say this. God did not judge Ahimelech or David because the showbread was given to David to eat. And that was a violation of the law God gave to Moses. And if God didn't judge them for that, then why are you judging my men or my disciples and me over a man-made traditional law that you guys added to the Sabbath? Because all God said about the Sabbath, for the most part, was it was to be a day of rest and reflection and revelation for his people. And so Jesus is saying, hey, why are you trying to fit us into a structure that is man-made? Which brings us to the point, what was then the full purpose for the Sabbath? And this is where it gets very um, applicable to us. Mark, in the parallel story to this, in his gospel, made the statement, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath for a few reasons. I'll give them to you real quick. It provided needed rest and refreshment for the people, the animals, and even the land. It reminded the Jews that Jehovah God was the creator. And as he rested on the seventh day, so should we as generous or as stewards of his generous grace. It was set aside as a special sign between God and his people. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to them here is that, again, in Mark, the the story is expounded upon, and Mark adds to it that, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And he's contrasting this whole heart of mercy relationship. Let me just make this statement for them and also for us as we might be tempted to create religious structures in our life and cause others to or judge others by those, any law or structure that violates the heart of God is not of God. God was a compassionate God that wouldn't have wanted his people to go hungry or starve. And they created such a structure in that day that it was more important to adhere to the law and be harmed than it was to display the merciful, gracious heart of God. This played itself out, by the way, in Israel in, um, in some pretty bizarre ways. In the, non, in the apocryphal books, of the Maccabeans, we would read that there was a time when Antiochus came against 
the Jews on the Sabbath and they said we're not going to defend ourselves because it's the Sabbath and thousands of people died because they wouldn't pick up a weapon and defend themselves in fear of violating Sabbath law. And so we have to understand the heart of God and that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the Pharisees here is you're missing it. You're so locked into the structure that the structure has become the thing you trust in and you've lost sight of the heart of God. And for us today, we need to be careful we don't turn our walks with God into some checklist of do's and don'ts, trusting in those do's and don'ts as the thing that makes us okay with God. Because if we do that, we can also come along then and judge others by our do's and don'ts and therefore violate the very heart of God in the process. And so Jesus is calling them out on that fact that they've lost sight of the very heart of God. And then in verse 5, he makes a bold statement when he says the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. That was a statement where Jesus was proclaiming his deity to them. Before we go on, I mentioned that in verse 3, have you not even read this? And I called out even. I believe that Jesus used the, that word even to make a statement, a subtle statement that reverberates through the centuries to us that true wisdom means more than having knowledge. True wisdom means more than having knowledge. It's a rhetorical question for sure to ask a Pharisee, don't you even know this story? To be a Pharisee, you had to have, in our Bible, what is the first five books? The Pentateuch? You had to have them memorized. Like, you open to Genesis 1-1, and I'm going to start reading it to you, but I'm not going to use a scroll. I'm not going to open my Bible. I'm going to just start reading it to you verbatim without the aid of having it in front of me. That is who the Pharisees were. And they understood the stories of the Old Testament, this story coming from 1 Samuel. Of course they read it. The point that Jesus is making is you don't know how to apply it. You're not applying the Word of God properly. True wisdom comes more from what you do with knowledge, not just the fact that you have knowledge. And that's important to you and me. It's not how many times you've read through the Bible. It's not even what you know about God. It's what you do with what you know that matters. Are you following me? Are you taking the word of God that you know? Are you ingesting that, chewing on it, allowing it to be sustenance to you? Are you using the Word of God in your life? Are we taking the Word of God, studying it, finding truths in it, and then applying those truths to our lives? If we do that, it becomes wisdom to us in our own life and also wisdom we can impart 
to others who would go through similar situations or times in their life. True wisdom is more than just the acquiring of knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. And so Jesus is challenging the Pharisees on what they knew, but they weren't applying that story and the truths of it in this situation. And we would also see that continue in the next section, beginning in verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. Pause. I mean, just consider what those two verses just said. On the next Sabbath, Jesus is in the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. Some people would say that the Pharisees actually planted him in the congregation based on what it says in the next verse. So knowing, let me put into my words, knowing Jesus couldn't resist himself to help somebody in this man's situation, most people believe the Pharisees made sure that he was there and they were watching Jesus to see if he would heal them Again, believing that that work of healing would be a violation of Sabbath law. You know what that means? The Pharisees knew Jesus' heart. They knew he had the power to heal. They expected him to heal. Well, let me put it this way. How close can you be to God and not acknowledge he's God? I mean, they had full expectation that he would heal, which is only God can heal. They knew it would be his heart to heal, and they obviously believed he could heal. And they were waiting to see if he would do it. So close to the cross, yet so far away from God. And I want to be judgmental of them and critical, but then I'm reminded in my own life of how many times I've talked about all God can do And then when my own personal life is impacted, I question whether he can actually do it for me. I mean, consider. These men actually believed he could, knowing only God could heal. But as we continue to read the story, they become enraged at Jesus in what it is he's about to do. Oh, that we wouldn't find ourselves in that place of having head knowledge of all Jesus could do and has done, both in other people's lives and even in my life, but then be unwilling to acknowledge him as the God in whatever situation we find ourselves in. But he, Jesus, knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. 
And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And they all rejoiced over the man's healing. That's what your Bible says, right? I mean, consider a man with a withered hand who's touched by Jesus. By the way, pause, not touched by Jesus, just spoken to by Jesus. And God's command becomes his empowerment. God's command becomes that man's empowerment. He could have said, Jesus, you know I can't. Jesus, my, I haven't been able to use this hand for years. I have no strength. Why don't you come and touch my hand? Maybe then I would be able to believe at some level that you did something. But you're asking me to do something I'm unable to do. But you don't see the man say any of that. Jesus says it. And when he says it, Jesus does two things. He gives the man the faith to believe. I mean, you got to consider the guy stretches out his hand. How embarrassing is it for Jesus and for him if nothing happens? He gives them the faith to believe and then empowers them through his healing to obey his command. And he stretches out his hand and he's made whole. And you'd think there would be just a huge ground swelling of joy. I mean, if I said, Micah, come up here and pray for me that God would deliver me from ALS. And he comes and prays, and now I'm jumping up and down, which I can't do. My speech goes crystal clear, and I break out running out of this place and around the block because I haven't been able to go running or jogging for six and a half years. Hopefully you all would be praising the Lord. <laughs> Hopefully it's not just me and my family that we'd be praising him. And you'd expect that kind of reaction. But here are these Pharisees, knowing the heart of God, knowing the heart of Jesus, believing he had the power to heal, and he would heal, and then when he does heal, what does the Bible say? It doesn't say they rejoice. It says they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That's a soft way of saying they discuss with one another how to put Jesus to death. How sad. How sad to be so close to God. How sad to be so wrapped up into a system of religion that each of us in this room can find ourselves within by our own creation that you bind up God in such a way 
that he can't operate in any way that you don't approve he operates in. How's that? That's the old wineskin. You're missing it. God, for all of centuries, was pointing them to this moment when the Messiah would come and set them free. And because they're so wrapped up in what it means to follow God through their own structure, they can't even see Jesus for who he is. And how many times do we find ourselves there missing what Jesus can do? For us, the command comes through the Spirit. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner and love your wives as Christ loved the church. Two different commands. Now, as husbands, we go, I don't understand her. How do I live with her in an understanding manner? And how do I love her as Christ loved the church? But God's commands become our empowerment when we trust him in it. We're called to minister to people. We're called to believe on the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through your lives. We're called to believe he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We're called to believe that he will supply all everything we need according to his riches and glory, including the power to operate in the gifts and talents he's given us. We're called to believe that, and if we step forward in faith, he, his command becomes our empowerment to live out this life of faith. To not believe that pushes us back into a box of our own making of religiosity, which will become bondage to us and to those around us. So it's important that we acknowledge those things. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continue all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So, following this time, it says he went off in a mountain to pray, then called his disciples to himself and appointed the twelve who were listed there as apostles. Now, apostles were going to be those twelve that traveled with him that he would instruct and help prepare them for following his death, burial, and resurrection, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to establish the church upon his sacrifice. And so he calls them to himself and appoints these twelve. And this is where the contrast begins to happen. Consider the Pharisees and who they were and the knowledge they had and the training they had. 
and the depth of information they had at their disposal. And Jesus is saying there's new wine that can't fit into old wineskins. And this new wine, let me tell you, it's not based on what you know. It's not based on who you know. It's not based on what rabbi you were trained up under. It's not based on pedigree or lineage. It's based on the calling of God. And he will call whom he will. So, you have the Pharisees on one hand, you have these disciples on the other. Before he appoints them, he goes up and he spends um, a night in prayer to God. Some would say that he went to God praying, Father, would you send me 12 other men besides these? (laughs) Right? Some people, actually there's a, a funny story where someone says, Jesus finishes the work and goes back to heaven and comes across Gabriel, the archangel. And Gabriel's like, man, the incredible work you did down there, Jesus. Good job fulfilling the plan of the Father. Now, what's the plan to follow up on the work that you, um, you did there. Well, we established the plan. I raised up our, some people to take the good news out. What, what people did you raise up, Jesus? Oh, those 12. And Gabriel looks at them and says, is there a plan B? <laughs> I mean, because from the world's perspective, God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The fact that I'm standing up here teaching the word of God is testimony to the truth of that verse, that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I'm still surprised every day I wake up that I get to do what God allows me to do. I'm the least likely to have the blessing of ministering to you in any way. He truly does do that. And consider you have the Pharisees and this whole religious system on one side And now you have Jesus appointing as 12. And these 12 are some interesting cats. And it reminds me that God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He'll call ordinary people to do extraordinary things. If we had put the list of people together, we wouldn't have gone with this list. We'd have gone with a list that included the best professors. We'd included in that list people with huge amounts of charisma and public speaking skills. We'd have put a few millionaires on the team to finance our crusades. We would have grabbed some pro boxers or wrestlers as bodyguards. I mean, we would have built the team differently. But consider the man Jesus showed. He went down to the fisherman's wharf in Galilee. He picked unknowns and those that the world will look at as a bunch, literally, of losers and criminals. Ordinary guys that he would train, empower, and send to do his work. Let's take a look at a couple of them. Simon, 
whom he also called Peter. One of his best or worst characteristics. He was impulsive and he spoke before he thought. He was prideful and self-dependent. When Jesus needed him most to stand and pray, he slept. And he was a poor swordsman because he went for Malchus's ear head and only got his ear. That's Simon. Andrew was Peter's brother. He was a disciple of Jan, John the Baptist, but reluctant to trust God. He was the one going, how are we going to feed all these people when the barley loaves, five barley loaves and two small fish. How's that going to happen? James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, they're the ones that when they weren't received asked Jesus' permission to call down fire from heaven and torch the people. Those are James and John. They had a lot of zeal, but no tact. And they were the ones that started the argument, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus? Philip, the timid Galilean, he waited for Jesus to talk to him. Philip was a calculating pessimist like Andrew was. He was always calculating how can we accomplish this Bartholomew. He was the skeptic. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, he said. Matthew, also called Levi, a tax collector. In the Jewish mindset, a criminal. He made his money through saying, you owe the Romans 20 shekels when you only owed them 10, and he would keep 10 for himself. That's how he made his money. And you match him with Simon the Zealot, who, if he'd have come across Matthew... Oh, by the way, these zealots, they um, carried hooked knives under their cloak. And if he'd have come across Matthew, he'd have made sure he felt the point, pun intended. I mean, these two guys would have hated each other. Then you have Thomas, who's now called, through all the centuries, doubting Thomas. Poor guy. And then... Last in the list, Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray. Yet Jesus, knowing, pointed him to that purpose and that position. He was not only a traitor, he was also a thief and stole money from those things that were given and sold to help Jesus and his men make ends meet. So this is the team that Jesus picks to change the world. If that doesn't give you encouragement today to know that Jesus can use you, I don't know what will. He took a band of nobodies and flipped the world right side up with 11 of them and added Paul, or Saul, who became Paul as a 12th after the fall of Judas, obviously after his resurrection. He was the one that Judas was replaced with. So... That is the team God picked me still. Myself as um, Exhibit 1, still doing the same thing. 
today. And notice that basis of God's choice. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For you see your calling, brethren, not, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And so the last lesson we can draw from this is notice the variety of people. God called. He didn't call everybody who's a fisherman any more than within the body of Christ. He calls all the same people. He calls people of a variety of personalities. He gifts them all differently that as a body when we're joined together we effectively can work for the furtherance of his kingdom. And so it doesn't matter your skill set. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your nationality or capabilities. You don't have to have a seminary degree. Nothing wrong with that unless that's what you trust in. Seminary-degreed people are welcome in the body of Christ. Me, I went to HSU, Holy Spirit University. That's it. But God welcomes everybody and then empowers them to move forth in all that he's called them to. And also note, I'm sorry, one last thing. And we'll wrap up. In Mark, in the parallel passage, I love what it says here. It says in verse 13, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 men. In Mark, it says, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power over power to heal sickness and cast out demons. And the important part is the twelve were first called to be with him. Any sending, any empowerment, any work that God is going to do through us first starts with us being with him. I think of um, Peter and John when they came out, I think it's in chapter 4 of um, the book of Acts, when they've been with the Pharisees, and they're marveling, like, who are these guys? And it says this of them. The one thing they knew is they had been with Jesus. Oh, that that would be our aim, to simply be with Jesus and not worry about what we're going to do. Be with him. He will show you what to do and empower you to do it. But don't run out to do things on behalf of God without making a point of being with him. If it was important enough for Jesus, who is God, to spend a night in prayer before appointing the twelve, just to commune with the Father through the night, how much more so is it important for us to commune with him and be with him before we launch out into the into the deep of serving him. Let me just wrap up with these final few verses. 
So following their pointing, now he's going to give them an example of what he's going to be calling them to do. And he came down with them, stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for the power went out from him and healed them all. Amen. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Salem Fellowship podcast for our Sunday services. Please open your Bibles as we dive into our study this morning.